This is from William Olney and his uh, poem, Not Man's Opinion, But God's Word. This is really important today, right? Because man thinks that he's so smart and everybody should listen to him, right? Not my opinions may I speak. If so, my witness will be weak. Not what in human books I find or the conclusion of men's minds. But what my God has designed to give, the teaching whereby we may live, the book of heaven, the sacred page, the rock of faith in every age. That only must my message be, if I shall bless humanity. I am not left to seek for suit in learning's page to find the truth. But here it is beneath my hand, the word which shall forever stand, an alterable, enduring, sure, flows the divine fount, fresh and pure. And so the word of God, again, we've just talked about that's just so important. And, um, you know, you hear today a lot of statements that, um, you know, the world system is really puts a lot of emphasis on change, doing something new. They're always looking for the new thing in education. It's what's new, right? What's new? What kind of new teaching do we have? What kind of new philosophy? And they don't understand truth doesn't change. Truth doesn't change. It really doesn't. It's the same as today as it was 2,000 years ago. So we don't have to change the truth. It is the same. And so you can see today a lot of the different philosophies of how to raise kids and philosophies of how to have families, how to have a good uh, marriage between a husband and wife. It's all changed, right? I mean, you've got so many different philosophies out there. And let me ask you, as you look at our society, how's that going? How's that working? It's not working very well, is it? And so just because someone has something new doesn't mean that it's real or legitimate. You have, I think, you have insane people perpetuating truth today. Insane people. Talking about insane things, making other people insane like them. (laughs) Because they don't find the truth in God's word to be important. And that never changes. It never changes. And so when you understand, for example, when we come to our message today about glory to glory, and this is going to be our last message on uh, the stimulant of glory. And then we're going to look at wrapping up what we've been talking about uh, concerning the glory of God. We've been on this. This is our 29th message. And just want to tell you that as you understand it, when we really fully appreciate what God has done, when you see it, it really opens your eyes to be able to allow God to really use you. And um, so I understand that uh, as you take in information, we all take in information based upon a lot of different ways. I mean, whether we're illuminated by the Holy Spirit, what's going on in our lives. And so people see things at different times, right? But when you really see what God has done for you, it really will have an effect of opening up your eyes to really being able to see God has done some amazing things. And we're going to see it today. And there's no reason then why we should not be a vessel for him to be able to bring glory to him. When we really understand what God has done and what he how he has changed us and who we are today and the things that he's provided for us. It should be a stimulation for us to be in a position of saying, "Okay, God, 
whatever you want me to do, I'm yours. I, I belong to you. Because, you know, one day we're going to do that. One day we're going to all die. And let me tell you, it's going to come faster than you think. I mean, I look at some of these. Um, it's interesting today, a lot of how many young people are dying. Right. I mean, by the droves. And it's interesting, some of the people I always find it ironic when you find people who were seen in, by the society as being beautiful people. I think it was Raquel Welch. I remember her. She just died not too long ago. And boy, back in the day, Raquel Welch was like, you know, that was it. She was the picture of what every woman was supposed to look like. Right. And uh, she was, you know, the greatest picture of what a woman should be. And then you saw her as she reached, what was it, 80 something? <laughs> and, and let me tell you, I don't care what you look like when you're 20, um, we're all dying. <laughs> this body is going to get old, and there's nothing going to stop it. If, as life goes on, you're going to see you're not as hot to trot, so to speak, as you think you are. And we're all going to die. And what you're going to come to find is what, um, there was a song when I was younger that they used to sing all the time. And I found that it is true. It's only what you do for Christ that will last. Nothing else, as you get older or as you die, is going to really matter. It's what you do for him that's going to really have a everlasting value. Everything else you're doing that is not rooted or based upon that is not going to matter. When you're sitting at the Bema Seat Judgment and they asked Lewis Perry Chafer when he, when, he, when, you, when he got into heaven, he says, Lewis, is it going to be when you get there that you're going to ask the Lord about starting Dallas Theological Seminary, is that going to be something you count on? He says, nope, not going to count on that. What about all the books that you wrote? Is that going to matter? Nope, not going to focus on that. What about all the people you led to the Lord? Nope, not going to focus on that. What about all of the people that became teachers out of that seminary? Nope, I'm not going to count on that. What is going to matter? The fact that God saved me and that I believed the facts of the gospel and was saved. That's all that's going to really matter. And so all of this other stuff, the world system can sap your mind to believe that this is real and that it has some redeeming value. And it doesn't. And you find it out when you die. That it's pointless isn't that what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes, Pointless, pointless. It's all pointless. And so here God has given us something that's not pointless. He's provided for us. And we're going to see in these two um, things here as we look at several um, parts of it. One, that he's given us promises of how God sees us in Christ so that the believer should never, ever see ourselves and say, I'm just not filling up to it. I just don't feel like I matter. <laughs> you should never say that as a believer. 
if you're trying to make yourself matter to the unsaved people, boy, you're going to be on a roller coaster because what they change, how they see and things, it changes over and over and over again. You can never, ever be consistently pleasing to the unsaved. You will never, you will drive yourself crazy trying to please the unsaved man. And then believers are provided things that provide the believer the ability to glorify God. So God has changed how we are seen and he has also affected who we are. And it's just just amazing things that he's done for the believer. And as the believer is able to grasp this, it absolutely changes your perspective of life. And it really brings you to the um, brink of being able to glorify God and allowing him to do the work in your life. And so let's look at these several things here. And hopefully, um, if you are not already there, God will get you there. And that this will affect how you understand that God has provided for you to bring glory to him. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity of being able to look at these things. And grateful to as believers that we have this picture or this time in life And it's a brief time as we look at it overall. It's just a very short picture of time. And one day we're going to all be able to leave this life at varying degrees and varying times. And we would hope that it's the things that we did while we were in this body for you, through the, the provisions of your son, that we can actually rely on. And it's going to be those things that we did that allowed you to be glorified through these vessels that we're in that really matter. And we're so thankful for that potential in your son's name. We pray. Amen. And so we see uh, Ephesians one, that uh, God has provided the believer promises concerning how he sees us that really matter. A lot of people struggle in this life with how they see themselves. There was a guy who wrote a book back some years ago. I think it was in the early seventies. I'm okay. You're okay. Do you know this is the struggle with people today? They struggle with how they see themselves, which they call self-esteem. They struggle with how people see them. And so a lot of you want to know most people in, in life are consumed with this. They're consumed with how they're seen by other people. How about this? What if you were consumed with how God sees you? Notice what he says here in Ephesians chapter one. If you understand how God sees you, you should never spend a day in the psychologist's office. I don't think you will. If you understand how God sees you, your psychological problems will be nil. Notice. Start with Ephesians and we'll start off and we'll go back in verse three. Again, this is probably one of the best books that you'll read in the New Testament because he tells you all of the wonderful things that God has done associated with your salvation. And starting in verse three, he says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. And so you and I are seen as uh, having all of these blessings or these things that, that are spoken well of us. Where? In the heavenlies. From God's record. Now notice in verse four, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us and to the adoption of children. And I would say 
that adoption of children is actually a little different. It's not really the idea of children. It's the son placement that you have all the rights and privileges as a result of being a believer, as a son does, who's uh, um, an heir uh, to his father's um, throne. And so having uh, predestined us uh, to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now notice in verse six, to the praise of the glory of his grace, or, or say from his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Now we sing that song in the beloved. Accepted am I, risen, ascended, and seated on high, saved from all sin through his infinite grace, with the redeemed ones accorded a place. Uh, it's just a wonderful song, and we probably don't sing it enough. There are some churches, I think Valley said that they wanted to make sure that they sang that song at least once a month. Why? Because it reminds the believer of what God has done. I love the last verse. In the beloved, I went to the tree. There in his person, by faith, I may be. Infinite love rolling over his head. Infinite grace, for he died in my stead. So what is he saying here? This word for accepted is actually the word. It's a form of grace. Uh, Charito, it means to pursue with grace, to compass with favor, to honor with blessings. And this is from Joseph Thayer. Um, Lowell Nida gives this definition to show kindness to someone with the implication of graciousness on the part of the one showing the mercy. Or I would say having spoken well of us. The, the son, the father speaks well of us because of the work that the son did. Now, some of us, if we went to a certain place and we put it, fill in the name of your hero that you have here on earth and they spoke well of you. Have you ever seen that where somebody shook hands with one of their favorite people, their heroes, and they said, oh, I'll never wash his hand again. <laughs> right? Or someone drank from a cup that you they gave you. I'll never wash this cup. <laughs> this person touched this cup. Right? And it sounds crazy, right? But people do this. Can you think of the fact that the Father in heaven speaks well of you because of the work that the Son accomplished on your behalf? It may not mean anything to you right now. Mark my word. It's going to mean something to you. Mark my word. If you drop dead today, this verse would mean tremendous, a tremendous amount to you. It would be better if it meant something to you now. Right? Because I, in faith, can count it to be so, and I can operate now in the here and now as a result of this, you see. And it makes a huge difference. And so I, I've been highly favored or spoken well of by whom? In the one having or in the beloved. That word in the beloved, a phrase in the one having been loved is actually how you could translate that. When used to, of love to a master or, or God or Christ, the word involves the idea of an affectionate, affectionate reverence, prompt obedience, gratefulness, recognition of the benefits received. Or actually, I think here it's point, pointing toward the one having been loved is Christ. 
And we're spoken well of. Why? Because we're connected to him. And so as a result of our relationship with the son, the father speaks well of you and I. And that's a huge thing because he's not going to speak well of everybody. And notice the believers are counted dead together with Christ in his death, death as our perfect substitute for our sins. And so the father looks at you and I and he can he counts us to have been died together with Christ. And so this is why he can relate to us in the way that he does. If you ever go into someone's house who, were, who was very clean, I know that a lot of houses, you go to the house and it's customary to take your shoes off, right? Because you don't want to mess up the carpet or, or whatever. And uh, you don't want to go to someone's house who has a white carpet and you don't take your shoes off and they've asked you to. It's not, it's, it's not going to end well for you. <laughs> and so you have that happen, but from a, from a believer's point of view, we are accepted in the beloved because of the work that the son has accomplished. So that the father sees us totally different now as a result of the work, of the work that the son has accomplished on our behalf. Now notice, look at Romans, the sixth chapter. Well, before we do that, turn to Galatians 2. This is one of my favorite scriptures here. Galatians chapter 2. Remember I told you there are certain scriptures that I use over and over again. 2 Corinthians 5, 20, um, 21 is one. Well, this would probably be a close second. And notice what Paul says here uh, in Galatians chapter 2. For I, through the law, am dead to law, that I might live unto God. Verse 20. I am crucified together with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. There's a song that we used to sing a lot, and we haven't sang it in a long time. Christ liveth in me. That the Son is um, manifesting his life in believers. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and he gave himself for me. I do not frustrate, or really, I do not set aside the grace from God. For if righteousness came by law, and I really take out of there the law, really, it's by any law. If I could make myself righteous by doing some law, then notice what happens. Then Christ died in vain. And that word in vain is he died with no strings attached. He, might, he wasted his time. If I can obtain righteousness by some kind of law that I can observe, either by Mosaic law or some kind of law I come up with myself to show God how righteous I am, then Christ wasted his time. He absolutely wasted his time. Notice, God did it through Christ. Romans chapter 6. Now notice in Romans chapter 6, Paul is talking about this uh, relationship in which we are counted dead together with Christ. And that happened as a result of 
implication, uh, uh, imputation, not implications, <laughs> imputation. And so God counted us, when you believe the facts of the gospel, what you didn't see happen, according to 1 Corinthians 12, is the Holy Spirit moved you from one position in Adam over to a whole different position of being in Christ. And so God reckons you to be there. And this is how he sees you. Though the believer, a lot of believers struggle to see themselves that way. A lot of believers have never gotten off of first base. They continue to see themselves the way that they were seen when they were born into this world. What a tragedy. If you see yourself that way, what a sad state of events. Because that's not how God sees you. Right? God sees you as having been moved from this position to his son, Jesus Christ. Now, having been baptized into this new position, into Christ, then he also accords you to have been died together with him. To have been buried together with him and have been raised together with him. And as a result of that, he sees you as having died for your own sins. And this is why he can relate to you and treat you the way that he does now. Notice in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in the sin? And I would say the sin nature that grace may abound. God forbid. How shall we who are dead to the sin nature live any longer therein? Know ye not that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? And so from God's reckoning, when you were baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, he counts you to have been baptized into the death of Christ. Now, notice verse four. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into that death, that as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the father, even so, we should walk in a newness of life. So what happened there? You know, the, the biggest enemy that you and I have is our sin nature. You know what was giving that sin nature life is this old position that we have in Adam. We've been set free from that. We don't have to indulge our sin nature. Now, I know that you hear those calls coming from the sin nature. Kevin, Kevin, come to me. You don't have to listen to it. We actually have been given the ability, the power to say no to it. The unsaved man doesn't have that. Do you realize that? I'm, I'm, I'm amazed today that the unsaved man, that there's not more crime than there is. Because once you don't enforce the law, and once you get rid of really solid families where people actually get spankings, you know, I was really a little bit more, I was scared, more scared of my dad when I, than I was the police. <laughs> I didn't even think about the police, right? It was my father that I was concerned about, right? He was the one that was the, the law. <laughs> and he really taught you how to obey and to say no to that sin nature. And so you have that in the unsaved world, but we have something much better. And that we, as believers, have the Holy Spirit who is able to cause us to overcome our sin nature. And it's because of what happened here. Now, notice in verse four, this we were buried together with him. That word buried is for all those who are in the rite of baptism are plunged under the water. Therefore, uh, declare that they are they put their faith in the death of Christ for pardon for their sins. Therefore, Paul likens baptism to a burial in which the former sinfulness is buried, uh, utterly taken away. And so 
God completely sees you differently today. I, and I know it's, it's hard and it, it really breaks my heart when I see believers struggling with how they see themselves. It really, because you say this is unnecessary. You should not struggle with how you see yourself as a believer. We ought to be the most confident people there are on the face of this earth. Because not how these people see us on the outside, but how my God sees us, right? That's where your confidence comes from. It doesn't come from how other people see you, you see. And so why? Because we were buried together with him. And notice in verse 5, and if we have been planted together with him in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing that our old man, which is our position in Adam, is crucified together with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. That body of sin, the sin nature, it might not, it's not destroyed. Boy, what to God it was destroyed. What to God it was destroyed. It's not destroyed, but it's been rendered inoperable. That's what that word really means. And so you and I, as a result of the work that the son did, we don't have to listen to the sin nature. Do you know that when I listen to my sin nature, I do it because I want to? I know that's hard for us to say. Why am I talking to you guys? Because y'all don't do it. <laughs> this is what I do. When I indulge my sin nature, it's because I want to. I don't have to. The Son has made it possible that I don't have to do it. And so you have that relationship. And notice he says that we were believers are raised together with Christ. So not only did we die together with him, we were buried together with him. But here's the kicker. We've been raised together with him. Now, notice in Colossians chapter three. And all of this is by imputation. And you say imputation. Ain't that some Greek word y'all talking about? Okay, well, let's put it in the relationship of your bank account. Do you know that that's what they're doing when you go and you, particularly when you do on, you work online? Anybody ever transact, transacted business from a bank account online? Right? So everybody understands how that works, right? Now, when you go online to your bank account, you, they are doing imputation here. And really, imputation... <laughs> If you understand what they're really doing. And so they are telling you that they have moved your money into whatever account that you wanted it transferred into. And you didn't actually see it with your eyes done. You counted it to be so. And it's interesting to me that people trust that transaction more than they trust what God has said here. When you do that on the online, you don't even flinch. You actually start operating on the basis of the fact that this has been done. How many believers are operating on the basis of what God says has been done for you? You didn't see it. But you counted it to be so with that bank account. And so notice here in... uh, uh, Colossians chapter 3 Paul is telling the believers to count at hey since this is a fact it's already happened this is how you should respond to it verse 1 of chapter 3 since you've then been rich see that word if first class condition here's where the language really makes a difference 
It's not an if. It's not questioning that you have been. But in a first class condition, you would say, since you've been risen together with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Set your see that with affection is your frame of mind on things above, not on the earth. For you are uh, dead and your life is hid together with Christ. And so this idea of uh, since you've been risen together, and that word for risen is the word agairo. Then you have this soon preposition. And it's looking at you as being associated with Christ. And so if it wasn't the fact that you weren't associated with Christ, then God wouldn't see you the way that he sees you. Now, you've been with friends and you've been with people who have gone to someone that you didn't know or some famous people or maybe even gone to a party where you didn't know someone. But you went with somebody that these people knew and you were able to walk right in with them. Right. Do you know, in a similar way, God is looking at you not because of you and me, but because of our identity together with Christ. And so he says that by the Holy Spirit baptizing us into the body of Christ, now we've been raised together with Christ. And I just love the fact when it says when I died, when Christ died, I died. When Christ was buried, I was buried. When Christ was raised from God's reckoning, I was raised from the dead together with him. I am totally identified, not with me anymore. But with my savior. Right. And so all of the, what happened before, and that's why Paul could say this in Second Corinthians five. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Do you know the hardest thing? And I, I just kind of did. Uh, you see this with a lot of people now just out of observation. And I'm sure maybe you've seen this. A lot of the people who are having psychological problems today, the thing that have struck me as I've watched them is they cannot leave the past behind. It reminds me of this um, this uh, segment that I saw on. Uh, I was looking at the, uh, some things for Noah to send to Noah and some of the grandkids, and it was Pilgrim's Progress. And on this Pilgrim's Progress, it was a video. And I think I've told you about it. And so he's taken Pilgrim on his way to the celestial city and they encounter this person who's in this cage. And the person in the cage is just weeping and wailing. And Pilgrim asked the guide, well, who is this person? And they said, well, ask him. And he asked the person, well, why? Who are you? Why are you doing this? And the person wouldn't answer him. All they would do was they just continued to weep and wail, weep and wail. And they were in this thing that looked like a prison. And the thing that was ironic about it, as the camera panned it away from the person, is they showed that the door was open. The person wasn't locked inside. And they couldn't see that the door was open. And you just see that with a lot of people. They're prisoners in their own mind. And they cannot let the past 
go. And they're just kind of captured that way. And for a believer, when we understand who we are in Christ, that we've been raised together with him, our identity and who we are, it starts here. Any relationship I have with the unsaved or the believers or whoever it is, it starts with who I am in Christ. And the fact that God sees me as having been raised together with him. I'm not the Kevin Jeffrey I was born into to this world as. I really put no stock in that. That I'm part of something new. I'm, I'm a part of the new creation. And that when I see myself there, it revolutionizes how I see myself. And I don't think how I see people, well, watch this. It's how people see me. You see, as I allow the glory of God, as the Holy Spirit to do his job and to produce the life of the Son through me. And so notice you, you, this raised together, it's using composition to emphasize the believers being counted by God the Father to have been raised together with Christ. And so you see that emphasis a lot. Notice another place you see it in Ephesians 2, which is the passage we read uh, earlier. Ephesians 2, 6. A big emphasis placed upon the fact that we've been raised together. And where were we raised from? We were seen as being spiritually dead you were dead. And so now we have been raised to a new kind of life. Notice in Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 5. Well, let's start with one just to give you a little background there. He says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past you walked according to the counsel of uh, the, the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Among whom also we've had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the others. This is what we were. We were just like the rest of the unsaved. We were just doing whatever our sin nature told us to do. And I'm talking about you guys. I'm just telling you, OK, I don't know what you guys were doing. But before I was saved, this is what I was doing. OK, and notice verse four. But God. <laughs> Who is rich in mercy. This is what mercy is that he had pity upon us. For his great love when he loved us even when we were dead in sins. He has quickened us together with Christ by grace. Are you saved? And notice what happened here. And he has raised us up together. And made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. So that now God is not looking at you as being Identify with these spiritually dead people here on the earth. He sees you as being identified with his son sitting at the right hand of the father. And all we're waiting for is to get everything else that's coming to us. And so we've been raised together with him. Do you see yourself there? Do you see yourself as being raised together with Christ? Are you identifying with the dead ones. Somebody talked about the zombie apocalypse coming. I'm thinking, well, that happened the day Adam ate from that tree. <laughs> the zombie apocalypse has been here for a long time. Uh, you just haven't recognized it. There's a bunch of spiritually dead people that are walking around. They're dead to God. 
And so notice, uh, he, uh, Peter, uh, excuse me, Paul employs the believers in Colossians 3. So you've got to seek out those things that are above. Since you've been risen together with Christ, seek out those things that are above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Set your frame of mind on things above. And so that word seek is the word zetae. And it's really what's called a present active imperative back in Colossians 3. And in an imperative, what you're doing is you're trying to tell someone, hey, Okay, you know, I can't make you do this, but man, I'm going to really tell you, if you really want to make things different, you really ought to do this. Hey, I can't tell you what to do. I can't make you do it. But I'm telling you, if you really want to change how things are, you might want to do this. If I were you, I would do it. You know what the difference is? Under law is you better do this or you're going to suffer these consequences. Today, God's not making people do anything. He's just saying, hey, you really ought to do this. If you know what's in your best interest, if I were you, I would do this. And he's not, you know, it's, you probably wouldn't do this if you were God, right? You probably would come down, take people by the hand and say, come on, Johnny, let's do this. But God is wanting the person to make the decision. As they avail themselves to what he's provided. To do what's in their best interest. To glorify him. And he's not going to make you. He's not going to make you. And so he says, you seek out these things. And notice these things that are above. If you go back into uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, there are some things that you come to understand about who, what God has provided and some of these things that we're talking about here, what God has provided for in Christ. And we're just going to say this and then we've got to move on. But notice here in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 2. There are things that God has provided for those who are growing and maturing. And so notice he says in verse 9, But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor neither has it entered into the heart of man. Notice the things which God has prepared for them, and I would say that are loving him. For God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit, and for the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of a man which is in him? Even the things of God knows no man but the spirit from God. Now we've not received the things from the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are graciously, that freely given, graciously given to us from God. Which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Comparing spiritual things, and I would say with spiritual words. And there are things that the Holy Spirit teaches you about who you are in Christ that causes the believer to grow in such a way that you see this life like you've never seen it before. God says, you, seek it out. You seek it out. Look for it. He put it there for the believer to know he's not going to come down and feed you. 
and spoon feed you and say, hey, come on, Kevin, here, let me take your hand and put it up to your mouth and you eat. He's not going to do that. The believer, and what I like the way Dr. Schaefer used to say it, it's the, um, it's the response to divine enablement. God provides the enablement. He's not going to make you respond. Now notice in Romans chapter 8, you see that believers are not condemned. Now this is a really interesting one here when you understand. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Now we have what is called a textual variant here, and it's really important in this verse. So a textual variant is that when you look at the Greek manuscript, it doesn't read sometimes what translations read, and you see it here in Romans 8.1. So in Romans 8.1, and a lot of your, actually your NIV gets it right, and some of your other translations gets it right, but the King James does not get this right in its translation. This verse should read like this. Therefore now there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, period. And really, the, the, the rest of that verse does not, is not, if you have an interlinear, you can look over in your interlinear and see that's not in the Greek language. And you say, well, how did it get there? Well, I don't know. You know, men who were not paying attention. It used to be that what they would do is that they would have, when they would transcribe uh, um, translations, they'd have a bunch of scribes in the room and a guy would be up front and he would be reading out. And you've done this right before where you write down something at a different place than what you actually heard it. And I think that this is my, might be how this came to be. But nevertheless, the point is this. There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, period. Now, why is that important? Because the word condemnation is the word catechrema. And so this catechrema, you got two uh, comp- compound form there. Crema means the result of an act of a legal decision. In other words, somebody did something and then a decision was rendered, right? Now, this kata with it, with that catechrema, it's a thorough rendering of a decision. And I believe a lot of it is a final decision. The fact that when you see at the great white throne judgment, a lot of these people are going to be rendered judgment that they're going to be consigned to a place that is totally apart from God. And not one person in Christ is going to ever have that said about them. Not one. You see. Now, let me show you another place where you see this word used. Look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 16 and 18. Romans chapter 5. Now, Paul gives us a lot of insight as to what happened with Adam. Now, Adam, Adam did his bad. And I know a lot of people want to say, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to say such and such to Adam. Better watch out. Adam might have something to say to you. <laughs> but hey, it was bad what happened there, right? Notice in verse 12, you see it. Wherefore, by one man, and I would say the sin nature entered into the world. And death by sin, and death passed on to all men, for all sinned. See that, E.D.? All of us sinned. Where? In Adam. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Do you know that God was not counting um, men's sin from Adam to Moses? And you know why he did it? He was doing an experiment. And he was going to show people the reason people were dying from Adam to Moses was not because of their sins. 
but because of Adam's sin. Now, notice what happened. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who was the figure of him who was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, and when he says offense, he's talking about a trespass. So the time that Adam, from the time that Adam said, I'm going to eat from this tree, all men were condemned, even before he did it. By the offense of one, many be dead. Much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one Jesus Christ, has abounded unto the many. And not as it were by the one that sinned, so also is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is by many offenses to justification. If by one man's offense death reigned, by one much more they which receive the abundance of grace of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by Jesus Christ. Now here's the point. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness, or really the righteous act of one, the free gift, of li- the free gift came upon all men to justification of life. And so God, Christ, undid what Adam did. And I really believe that this um, justification is not to every man. But notice, I mean, if you really see that in verse 15, he makes a point of saying, it's unto the many. It's unto the many. There is not one person that's going to be condemned in Christ. Not one. Ain't that something to shout about? When you understand that not one person in Christ is going to receive condemnation, you don't even stand in a place of being condemned today. Why? Because Christ undid what Adam brought. Now you see that believers also are provided things that provide the believer the ability to glorify God. Notice we're made near to God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13. Notice, uh, when you, if, you, if things had gone on and God had not intervened, you and I were seen as just being like the rest of the Gentiles. I don't see anybody in here that was Jewish. And I used to think I had 1%, but I found out I don't have that 1%. So this shows you all of this stuff is nonsense. <laughs> so now they say, I'm not 1%, I'm something else. That's <laughs> just crazy how that works, right? Now notice in verse 12. That at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. So all of the Gentiles, remember, God allowed the Gentiles to go their own way at the Tower of Babel. All men rejected him. And so he took one group of people, the nation of Israel, and started dealing with them as a people. And he allowed all the Gentiles to go their own way. And you and I would have been in that group of the Gentiles. He just let us go our own way. And this is what Paul is talking about here. He says that wherefore, verse 11, when you were being in times past Gentiles in the flesh were called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands. At that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was the plight of the Gentiles. 
you and I had no prospect of anything related to God. But notice what he says in verse 13. See those two words used together. You see it again back in Ephesians chapter two. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes far off are made near by the blood of Christ. So you and I, because we're seated at the right hand of the father, are seen as being near to God. And I know we sang that song growing up also. You don't have to sing that today. You can take that out of the hymn book. Nearer my God today. We already are near from God's reckoning. He, believe it or not, he looks over at his right hand and he sees Adlin in Christ. He sees Rick in Christ. He sees Vanessa in Christ. Uh, he sees Lynn in Christ. Well, I don't want to leave anybody out. He sees us all that are believers in Christ. Right? And so we are seeing that. And the only thing is, is because we haven't gotten all that's coming to us. We're going to catch up with that, you see. And there's going to come a day when we're going to get complete redemption. And we're going to have everything that God says that we're going to get. Right now, it's just partial. But in God's mind, it's complete. And so... Notice we are near to God. Notice the other thing that you see concerning that. <clears throat> Believers have been made the fullness of God. <clears throat> and when you go back into John, notice in John chapter 1 and verse 16, he says something here and then Paul expands upon it later uh, about us participating in the fullness of having the result of the act of filling. Um, we're able to participate in God's divine nature. As a result of being in Christ. And so notice in uh, John 1, John pictured this in verse, uh, let's start with 15. And John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This is was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness, really I would say out from his fullness, have we all received And I believe that you could translate this here, grace, and we have received grace for grace. Now, there's a big controversy over what does that grace for grace mean. I do believe that it's grace instead of favor. And so the Old Testament saints, they got favor. Notice he says we've received grace instead of favor. Now you see this explanatory guard here that explains what he just said. Verse 17, for the law was given by Moses. But grace and truth came, and I would say through the instrumentality of Jesus Christ. And so you see this fullness that we participate in. And notice in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 39 and verse 13, you see it. And so this is the picture that the church, when everybody's firing on all cylinders, would to God that this happen now? And when the church was far, if the church was firing on all cylinders, man, it would just be a thing to behold. Every believer recognizing their position, every believer following in the will of God and the Holy Spirit filling every believer. What would that even look like? I mean, it would be an amazing thing to see. And will it happen on this earth? Probably not. Probably not. You know. We, we have seen in Second Timothy that the church is going to end in failure. 
And the believers, and in each dispensation you see it, the believers, God provides a provision, and the believers for that dispensation fail to recognize or to appreciate the provision that God has provided. And so it will be for this dispensation. But it's a wonderful picture to look at. (laughs) Notice in Ephesians chapter 4, notice in verse 11, and he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors, even teachers. Notice why he gave those. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, into a mature man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of, and I would say, the Christ. And so everyone manifesting this kind of life that the believers have been given, wouldn't it be beautiful to see? My wife just loves white Christmas lights. She abhors these, um, what do you call them, lights? The um, new lights that they have, the, the LEDs, that's it. She abhors the LEDs lights. Why? They just don't, they don't have the same flash. As the bright lights, right? Wouldn't it be beautiful if you saw the picture of the church, every part of it, living out what God has provided? What would that even look like in the world? Wouldn't it be an amazing picture to the unsaved world? Now, you could say that I'm being a little cynical, but... I think that I'm biblical in saying this. I don't think it's going to happen. Because the church does not recognize the provisions that God has given to it. And the potential of that occurring. Only some here and there get it. Right? Philippians chapter 2. That we shine as luminaries in a dark world. And so you can see believers who are getting it and they're being filled by the Spirit and the Spirit is using them. And they're sparkling here, they're sparkling here, they're sparkling here. Oh, but that what if the entire church, the body of Christ, all over the world, realize this? The potential is enormous. Then the last thing you see is that believers, well, two things. Believers are made one with Christ, that we are part of the body of Christ, and we're seen as one thing, that the church is not divided. We're all part of the same body, all people all over the world. Now, we used to sing a song here, and a lot of people didn't like it because it sounded like a kindergarten song, but it did convey a good truth. I am the church. You are the church. We are the church together. All who are believers all around the world. Yes, we're the church together. And it's believers all over the world that we share this oneness. And notice in John chapter 10 and verse 30, the Lord prayed this prayer and he had this desire that the church would be one thing. And so notice in John chapter 10, he says, In verse 28, he says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So if you're struggling with eternal security, 
I mean, I, I come back to this verse, right? Do you think that you're big enough or someone else is big enough to take you out of the father's hand and the son's hand? You didn't give yourself eternal life. And oh, let me tell you a secret. You can't take it. The father did it. And so notice he says. So in verse 29, my father, which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one thing. And so now he looks at this and he looks at the picture in the future of the believers sharing in this idea of being one thing. And uh, notice in believers in uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse, well, look at 1 Corinthians 12 and 20. First Corinthians 12 and notice in verse 20. Notice, uh, start with verse 18, but now hath God set members, every one of them in the body as it has pleased him. And if they were all one member, where would the body? But now are they many members yet, but one body or really, I would say one thing. And so you have many different members in the body of Christ and all make up this one thing, which is seen as the body of Christ. And so we're, we're unity, no matter where we are, no matter where we go, we're all part of this one body or this one thing. And then the last thing we see is as a result of that, all believers are made saints. You know, this word for saints is the word for, um, uh, actually it's a hagios, and it's set apart ones. And in some places, in order to be a saint, you have to act like it. Right. I told you and Courtney told you about my brother when he was part of a Pentecostal church in Detroit. And I went up there and the woman asked, was he holy? Well, I think I'm holy. I wanted to tell her, yes, in Christ, I am holy. But do you know that's what that wasn't what she was looking for? She was looking for an idealistic view of holiness that based upon some manifestation of what I can see. Right. And that then varies. I remember when I was younger, we would have a street revival. Holiness was identified as women wearing long dresses, not wearing makeup, um, and all of these different things and parameters that they have. And you could have all of that and still be, do you realize you can wear, not wear makeup and wear a long dress and still be directly on your way to hell? You realize that? (laughs) And so what is a saint? A saint is not someone who is set apart from things. You are set apart to God as called out ones, seen as distinct from the world. Not so much in dress does matter, but more than anything in your routine manner of life. And how you direct your life. Now, we just look at a couple of verses here and then we'll wrap it up. Notice in Acts um, 9.13, we see that this is the first time that uh, saints is used, and it's talked about those believers. You know, early on in the church, and you saw this uh, with Courtney as he's been preaching through the book of Acts, they called, they didn't know what to call these people at first, these people called believers. They called them the members of that way uh, was the main thing that they called them, among other things that we probably couldn't repeat from the pulpit. But 
the main thing they called them was that, and then they became known as Christians in Acts 13. And notice here what they're called in Acts 9 and verse uh, 13. Uh, let's go back a little bit. And so this is after Paul was persecuting the church. And he says in verse 12, and he had seen a vision. Uh, Ananias is trying to convince the people that Paul is a good guy. Now, he had seen a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how, many, how much evil he has done to the saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all that are called on thy name. And so this is the first time in the book in the New Testament that you see this word for saints. Ones, and I would give it this definition, those who are set apart ones. And we are called saints by God. You know, whether people ever call me a saint, do you know that God sees me as a saint? God counts me to be a saint. Notice with 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and we'll close with this. Now, here's Paul. He's talking to these nasty Corinthians. Now, we've been in the book of 1 and 2 Corinthians for the last, I'll let you fill in the gap, how many years that was. But you know how bad these people were, right? Notice what Paul writes as he stores the book off and he says this. Because it's not based upon your behavior, it's based upon the work that Christ did. Now, of course, if you, act, if you believe that, you will act right. But notice, it doesn't change that. Verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Notice what he says in verse 2. Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, the ones having been set apart in Christ Jesus, and notice what he says about them, called saints. Called saints. Now you read that, and then you compare it to chapter 3 when he says you're carnal. Do you know that their sainthood did not change? If they believe the facts of the gospel. That it's unmovable. Well, the Catholic Church says that you have to do some miracles. You know, they're investigating Pope John Paul to see if he did a miracle in order to make him a saint. They have the evidence that he did some miracle that can be authenticated. And then you can be called a saint. Do you know? God calls us saints. That we're set apart ones to him. That we belong to him. And the irony of it is, whether we ever actualize that, God doesn't change it. You and I, if we gave someone something and they didn't do what we expected them to do, we would take it back. God doesn't. Man, if you understand what God has done for us, if you can actualize in your mind the provisions that God has given, there shouldn't be any reason why you and I shouldn't say, okay, God, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, I'm yours. My life is not my own. 
I've been bought with a price. And allow the Holy Spirit to produce God's life through me that I might be able to glorify him. One day, we'll see it. We'll see it 2020. Right now, we can see it by faith. And count it to be so. And it will really affect how we live in the here and now. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to be able to see these things and just so grateful that as believers that we have we have a wonderful life and we have a wonderful hope. We're not as the unsaved who are despondent and depressed and totally sad about this life. We have the possibilities of being hopeful and that our future is as bright as the promises that you've provided in your word. So we're thankful that we can live this life in such a way as to glorify you and to be able to be able ones to, um, utilize, to be utilized and to do those things that are well-pleasing to you while we're in this body. Thankful for that potential. In your son's name we pray. Amen.